It's Friday the 13th on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. But that doesn't mean we're going to be unlucky. We got good stories and our luck is in because Rick Rowan is here, our state house and politics editor, along with Layla Tassi and Lisa Garvin. I'm Chris Quinn. We got news. Let's get to it. If you've grown weary of the dysfunction in Ohio, there's now a concrete step you can take to be in fixing this wayward state. Lisa, what is it? Yeah, you want to sign those petitions for an independent redistricting commission ballot initiative for next year. Yesterday, the Ohio Ballot Board unanimously approved the ballot language for this proposal without debate. They determined that it's a single issue, which it has to be to go on the ballot. So uh, Attorney General Dave Yost has to certify the ballot board vote, which is a given, and then signature gathering can begin. So Citizens Not Politicians, which is the group that is forwarding this, it says it's a big day for Ohioans of all political persuasions. Former Chief Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court, Maureen O'Connor, who's spearheading this, says citizens are now one step closer to taking the wheel and putting politicians in the back seat when it comes to uh, choosing districts. So next, they have to collect about 413,000 signatures from 44 of the 88 counties, and they have to do this sometime before July 2024. And most Democrats are in support of this. Many of them are, but Republicans are likely to oppose this. They're already crafting messaging that the current process works because the maps we have now were unanimously approved by both Republicans and Democrats on the commission. Frank LaRose, our secretary of state, is surprisingly noncommittal. He says he, he's thinks that there are interesting proposals in this uh, proposed amendment, and but he's worried about the accountability of a 15-member commission and, uh, and concern about, you know, po- possible lawsuits. They're going to try and claim that the system works. It's pretty hilarious because nobody would ever agree with that. The Republicans have shown they're going to fight this because they've enjoyed the fruits of their gerrymandering. And really, you can take back the, the Republican maneuvering on this back until like 1915 or 2015 because the League of Women Voters was trying to get something on the ballot then that would have been much better than what we have. And finally, the Republicans in the legislature said, OK, 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 we'll do it. They put together what we have now, fully planning, I think, to abuse it, which they've now done uh, and have reaped the fruits of the labor, a supermajority that doesn't match the, the state and complete dysfunction and idiotic proposals. But I don't see how they're going to win this battle in the campaign. People voted 70 percent plus to change it last time. I think they'll change it this time. Everybody wants change. I just it'll be interesting to see how they try. They tried to do it with issue one. They tried to Mm -hmm. peddle nonsense for that. There's a lot of nonsense being peddled on the abortion issue. And Ohioans don't seem to be buying. So I don't know how they're going to win this battle when this gets to the ballot. Yeah, let's hope not. And and the reason that the two Democrats, Nikki Antonio and, and Allison Russo, finally voted yes on this last set of maps is they're pinning their hopes on next year. And, you know, we've had two votes in 2015 and 2018 that voters overwhelmingly wanted to end gerrymandering. So this would be like the final nail in the coffin if this passes. 
Yeah, I, I do want to worry a little bit that this proposal is somewhat complicated. And when something is complicated, it makes it vulnerable to bogus attacks by people who don't want it to happen. Th this one, as we've been reporting it, it does have enough intricacies that it may be hard for people to grasp. So we'll have to see how that develops. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How do some Ohio lawmakers propose blocking the very easy access that youths have today to pornographic video? Rick? So a new bipartisan bill proposed in the Ohio House would require pornography websites to verify the age of users, and it would actually impose criminal penalties if they don't. So it's House Bill 295, and it was recently introduced. Uh, hasn't had any hearings yet, but it's similar to other legislation that's already passed in seven states. It would require these websites to use what it calls a commercial age verification system, and that would require users to upload a copy of their government ID or some other kind of document, such as a mortgage statement or an employment document, to confirm the fact that they're adults. Uh, violators would be charged with a third-degree felony, which is punishable with up to three years in prison and a $100,000 fine. The bill also creates a criminal charge for kids who try to circumvent the system. Anyone under 18 who tries to use a fake ID to access pornography websites will be charged with a fourth degree misdemeanor, which brings a jail sentence of up to 30 days and a $250 fine. So the legislation sponsor says that the charge for kids is meant to be a deterrent, not something that spurs you know, wide-scale investigations from law enforcement. He describes them as uh, common sense barriers. But trade groups uh, representing the adult entertainment industry are couching this as a free speech infringement issue. So far, the, the bills passed in other states have had pretty mixed results uh, when it comes to being challenged in courts. Uh, and then one other thing that's worth noting about the bill is that it would ban the use of deepfake technology to impose someone else's image uh, within pornography. Do we have any idea uh, in other states how effective it is at reducing youth viewing of pornography, or is it too early to know that? I think it's too early to to know that. Um, the The pornography websites have, uh, in in some cases, just stopped operating in some of these states, and um, in in other cases, seen a, a drop in traffic. But it, it's not really clear if uh, that's a product of uh, children no longer viewing pornography or just an overall drop because this you know creates a, an additional hurdle to accessing it. Yeah, for anybody that has been accessing it anonymously, this will block right. them. I wonder why the porn industry hasn't come up with some technological advancement to be able to do this. You know, the whole uh, the whole technology for streaming video blew up because of porn companies. They were behind those technological advances in the early days that made it easier to stream because they have so much money coming in. And you'd think that if this is going to block the anonymous people who are using their sites, they'd come up with some system that would pass muster with legislatures to make sure the kids aren't seeing it. It is astounding how easy it is for youths to access pornography. It's nothing like when I was a kid. I mean, it was just, I'm amazed at what any kid with internet access is able to view. 
One one question that I've got with this is how they're going to define pornography and who's going to be subject to this. So, um, you know, you can scroll through social media and there's probably things that uh, you could define as pornography. Absolutely. So Instagram and TikTok and, and Twitter or X, um, are, are they going to be subject uh, to this as well? Um, I think that's going to be an interesting question as this be, uh, gets debated. Yeah, it's very, very difficult to to parse that. Um, it'll be interesting to see what they do. It, it is a noble effort because there have been studies that have found that that youth perceptions of relationships and sex are very much colored by what they see in pornography, which is about as realistic as Saturday morning cartoons. Uh, and, and it's probably bad for their mental health to be watching that stuff at this young, impressionable age, but how do you parse yeah. it? And and this is a privacy nightmare. Like one of the the people that we talked to, you know, for the article, it is because that does it means everybody who goes on a porn site has to provide an ID. So somebody is warehousing that information, and they're asking for a mortgage statement or a utility bill. Come on, you know, I you know, and I think the article said in Louisiana, Pornhub found that their traffic dropped eighty percent overall after you know. And, and trust me, uh, internet porn is a scourge of modern society. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but this is a privacy nightmare. Yeah, and I just I think the demand is what determines it. It clearly there's a huge demand for this, and so people will find a way. But you can't. You're not going to be able to block this stream up. We've seen repeatedly over time. If there's high demand for something, people figure out a way to get it. But you got to salute that they're trying to do something about it after years of what can be damaging to youth. Interesting. We'll see how it develops. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, some of our readers were confused by what they thought were conflicting details in two stories about marijuana. They weren't conflicting details. They were just looking at different sets of facts. But we set out to clear it up. Do traffic fatalities go up when states legalize recreational marijuana? Well, Gretchen Kudakrone broke this down for us because, yeah, it has been kind of confusing. We've been talking about it a lot in the newsroom. Last weekend in one story, we said that some studies show that traffic accidents and insurance claims increased in states following the sale of recreational marijuana. And in another story, we said other research finds that drivers who test positive for weed are, are no more likely to be involved in a crash. So in the end, Gretchen says there, there isn't solid research available that clearly ties a change in traffic accident rates to the legalization of marijuana. And there are multiple reasons why we can't draw conclusions about the data we do have. We have heard the statistics that the number of accidents have increased in states where they have legalized weed or that greater numbers of people involved in accidents have tested positive for cannabis. But those statistics don't tell us anything really about the role marijuana played in those cases. First of all, we've said before, you can get into an accident and test positive for marijuana that you consumed days earlier, and that doesn't mean you were under the influence of it at the time of the accident. Second, a positive test for cannabis doesn't take into account whether alcohol or other drugs may have been involved in that particular accident. And third, the practice of testing drivers is pretty inconsistent. After weed was legalized in some of these states, it could be very likely that police started checking more often for marijuana than before, which would make it impossible to get an apples-to-apples -apples comparison with the pre-cannabis time period in those states. And finally, you know, comparing an individual state's accident rates to itself 
doesn't account for changes that might have nothing at all to do with the legalization of recreational weed. For example, they say that people started driving more erratically during the pandemic and that crashes reached a high point during that time. So while some states that legalized marijuana saw an uptick in crashes in recent years, so has the rest of the country. So I think the overall takeaway here is that for the most part, trends in state in states with legal weed align with the national average when it comes to crashes. So the data is is impossible to tie to weed itself. What's clear is we haven't created a source of runaway fatal accidents and accidents. We haven't seen just out of control because it's a high percentage of the population that's using marijuana. So if this was a big contributor to traffic issues, you would think you would see it. We have an intense hunger among our audience for stories about marijuana. I mean, they just keep clamoring for more. I sent out a text yesterday listing the most recent four and got a million thank yous. People are just glad we're tackling this. And I thought it was interesting when Dave Yost issued his analyses of both issue one, abortion, and issue two, marijuana, on our website, which th- these stories had identical headlines except for issue one, issue two. The issue two shot to the top of our charts, number one story, while the abortion one was was not nearly so red. So we're going to keep think, trying to do more stories on this. I think it's because of what you said before, that a lot of people already have their minds made up about abortion. They probably always have. Their whole life had very strongly held up opinions about that. But when it comes to weed, they haven't really thought about it. And so if they're going to make a decision in November, it has to be based on facts. And they're, they're really, they really need to know these things. I'm so glad that we Every single person I've talked to who has been anti-cannabis has drawn upon some kind of of crash statistic or has made an argument about the safety on the roads. And there's always something missing from that discussion. And I'm so glad to see Gretchen's story. I felt like this, this really cleared the air. I'm hoping we get to this before the election. Why, if THC, the inebriating element of marijuana, stays in your bloodstream for weeks, you don't remain high for weeks. My early reading of it is that in the liver, uh, the THC is converted to a different form of THC, which is not intoxicating. But I I just want to get the knowledge because you have a direct correlation between alcohol in your bloodstream and how inebriated you are. It doesn't work that way with THC. People use it. They get high. The high goes away fairly quickly, but the THC remains how, how do you account for that? So look for that story if we can get it done. Well, we've also been talking in the newsroom about, you know, the question of it. we have all these states where weed is legal recreationally, and yet it doesn't seem like they've developed any tools to for police officers to determine on the road whether someone is incapacitated because of the use of marijuana, because it's a different experience than 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 drinking alcohol. Someone who's drunk, if you're going to apply the same standard to someone who's who has uh, been smoking weed, they might they might pass that that field sobriety test, um, and they might be unable to drive. So I, I'm really surprised. We've been saying in the newsroom that it's surprising they haven't come up with a tool to uh, that's separate from what they use for drunken drivers. Right. The NIH study I read about this said THC starts in your system. It's intoxicating. It gets to the liver where it's converted into a different kind of THC. It's got some initials after it, a low H or something. 
that's still intoxicating, but then it's converted again to one with a longer set of initials that's not. So why can't we get a test that discerns between those forms? Because that would give police an instant read on whether they have the intoxicating molecules or the non. It just, I, I, it throws me that we don't have any of this yet, but it, it would just want to give people as much understanding as we can. So we will continue to do so all the way up through the election and afterwards. It's today in Ohio. It's not Edgewater Beach where we discussed gross sewage outflows earlier this week, but another waterway, another waterfront is going to get some help from an expensive project to keep the sewage out, and it's almost ready. Lisa, what will it do? I was fascinated by this story, Chris. So the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District is just about finished on a new pump station, which is north of the shoreway near the Cuyahoga Old River Channel. There are five nine-foot-tall pumps at the bottom of a 200-foot shaft that connects to a brand-new westerly storage tunnel. So about 45 million gallons of sewage a day will be pumped through that tunnel to the upgraded westerly wastewater treatment plant. Um, And this is one of seven tunnels that have been completed or under construction to greatly reduce sewer outflows into the Cuyahoga River after heavy rains. So, um, and that occurred at what they call the Walworth Run outfall, which is in the flats near Scranton and University Roads, just under the I-90 bridge. So this overflows into the river 50 times a year on average, dumping about 300 million gallons of raw sewage into the Cuyahoga. So after this is up and running, that should decrease to only one outflow a year into the river, about 3.5 million gallons total. I want to put people into the Wayback Machine and go back a quarter century. Back then, our sewer bills were dimes and nickels. I mean, literally a few bucks. And we started to do stories saying, your sewer bills are about to go up astronomically year after year after year for a long time to come. And they have. They're now much bigger than our water bills, which they weren't. The whole idea was to use that money to build this kind of system. And so for the last 20 years, we've been spending enormous sums to keep the sewage out and have greatly reduced it. This is the product of all those enormous sewer bill increases we've all been paying for all this time. And it's good to see that it actually is going to work. Yeah, and and it's ongoing. I mean, they still have a ways to go. So Walworth Run is like the 74th of 112 sewer outfalls that now comply with Environmental Protection Agency standards. There's a project, a $3 billion project clean lake that is upgrading our 19th century sewer system. So next, they're going to be addressing the Morgana Run, the Kingsbury Run, and the Burke Brook outfalls next. Those three dump a combined 760 60 million gallons of sewage into the river. And so they hope that that will be up and funneled to the southerly wastewater treatment plant by 2029. Okay. It's good news for the river. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Here's another marijuana story. Rick, how is the campaign to legalize recreational marijuana on the November ballot different from the marijuana campaign that was run in Ohio in 2015? 
So far, the backers of the recreational marijuana proposal aren't spending nearly as much money this time around as they did in 2015. So back in 2015, the backers uh, of that proposal outspent opponents $20 million to $2 million, so 10 to 1. Uh, They spent that money sending a mascot called Buddy on a statewide tour and airing ads on television. This year, however, the campaign is pretty much flying under the radar Uh, Spending has been nearly non-existent on both sides. Uh, The pro-issue two side is uh, charging $20 for yard signs. The campaign finance reports we uh, have so far show they spent most of their money collecting the signatures to get this thing on the ballot in the first place. They're not on television yet, uh, but they say they're putting ads on streaming services. Those are harder to to track, um, but they say that those are out there. On the opposition side, we're seeing very little as well. Uh, A new group has popped up to make an ad buy, but so far the main opposition group isn't really spending a ton of money either. Uh, This is kind of surprising. The traditional campaign season really gets uh, heavy after Labor Day, and we just haven't seen that here. There could be a few things in play, though. You know, for one, an abortion rights amendment is at the top of the ballot, and that kind of a hot button issue could be soaking up most of the oxygen and fundraising dollars. And then two, it's highly unusual to have back to back high profile issue elections in August and November in Ohio. Uh, So it's possible that there's just not a a ton of resources out there, too. I suspect one of the reasons we're getting such high readership for the stories we do on marijuana is because there's a lack of information anywhere else, even in the advertising. I wonder if we should put together one of those posts we do on occasion where we list all the stories we've done for people that are looking to get educated as fast as possible. We did that with issue one in August, not the abortion, but the one where we were trying to destroy our ability to change the constitution. And people did respond well to that. I wonder if that's what we should do to help people again. Uh, it's, it is interesting how hungry people are for this information. You're listening to Today in Ohio, talking about popular stories on our website. This next one has been popular for a few days. Layla, how did a couple of giant boulders prove their worth to a Cleveland Heights resident who has been endangered multiple times by reckless drivers? This is the story of John Gall, who since the 1990s has lived in his house on the T intersection of South Taylor Road and Fairmount Boulevard in Cleveland Heights. When he first moved into the house, the city had a guardrail in front of his house, but the city removed it during a construction project a while back. And unfortunately, that's meant that a bunch of drivers over the years have missed that turn and sometimes crashed into his house. Two years ago, after a sedan fleeing police landed in his house, Gall put some old cabinets near the tree lawn as a buffer with a sign that said, where's my guardrail? Then last summer, an SUV also believed to be going 80 miles an hour or more, crashed into Gall's Subaru Forester, which was parked in the driveway, and the SUV hit with enough force to take out the brick garage as well. So after that, the city put these two enormous boulders in front of Gall's house, and last weekend, these boulders did their job twice. On Friday night around 10 o'clock, Gall heard a sound outside. When he looked, he saw a sedan with its engine block propped up on top of one of the granite boulders placed near his sidewalk, and Gall went out of town for the rest of the weekend. But on Monday, when he 
prepared to leave the house for the day, he noticed there was a wheel and other parts on his tree lawn that hadn't been there Saturday morning. And his neighbor filled him in on what happened and showed him a picture of an SUV that was wedged between the two boulders. So Gall is a little sick of this, as you might imagine. He wants the city to do more to protect him and his home from these drivers who fail to negotiate that curve. And he thinks one good idea is to give drivers better warning about the T-intersection ahead with better signage or directional arrows on the traffic light signal bulbs to remind people that they can't go straight. Seems easy enough, but... Although, although I've driven that intersection literally hundreds of times mm-hmm. and never once have felt like my car was out of control. You'd have to be speeding at mm-hmm. a ridiculous rate to, to have to do this. In a, in a, it's, I mean, this is a neighborhood street. This is not a throughway. This is not a, a, a major commuter route. It throws me that people are driving that fast on that road. I mean, I I get that we all might go over the speed limit a little bit, but you really would have to be doing 70, 80 miles an hour to blow through there. And, you know, do they do that in your neighborhood? I, I just, it throws me that how, how big a problem this is because you just can't drive that fast on a neighborhood street. I, I'm, I'm, go ahead, Lisa. No, I, I, cause yeah, like you, Chris, I mean, my favorite bakery is just like two doors down from that intersection. And I was there just a couple days before those accidents. I don't know. I think that they could probably use some of those yellow directional area arrows there, but those boulders did their job. I think that he needs a third boulder in between the two that he already has, but I think that's his driveway though, isn't it? <laughs> no, no, it's next to his driveway. It's next. It's it's oh, right okay. across the front lawn of his house, and so there's a space between these two humongous boulders. I think a third boulder would. And he said the second time, I guess the SUV apparently moved a couple of the boulders. So I don't know there, what else they can do. There is an aesthetic here. You don't want to turn that into a highway kind of thing with lots of big yellow signs. Mm-hmm. This is a neighborhood, and mm-hmm. that shopping area you're talking about is a quaint little shopping area that people mm-hmm. love. Do you really want to have gigantic yellow arrow signs and blinking yellow lights? I, it just, it, 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 the people that are, what they ought to do is spend some time doing speed control there and really start writing some large tickets. Cause isn't that a 25 zone? Yeah. They just through? recently changed Taylor to a 25 mile an hour street. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, going 80 in a 25, that that's so reckless that you really should lose your license. Wait, when you approach that intersection, especially in the evening when it's dark, does it appear that the road continues straight? No, no, and it's a red light. There's a green light, red light <laughs> Yeah, that's there the too. thing is when I mentioned the, the, the uh, traffic signal, I figured, well, there's even a traffic light that's slowing traffic down. Why, why are yeah. people flying through it? But I mean, on the other hand, it's not this guy's fault that these people are speeding and it really wouldn't cost that much to make some adjustments to protect him. He's not he's not asking for a lot. No, I'd give him more boulders. I would I think try the boulders to, are yeah. less aesthetically pleasing than a sign. Oh and, no, 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 they, no, I disagree. I, I disagree. Yeah, I, I I actually think they look kind of cool, but Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the big yellow signs and arrows. I mean, I get why they took the guardrail out. It was hideously ugly. So putting big boulders out there would protect him. Uh, and, and the danger is for people to hit those, they could be they could be seriously injured. What surprised me is how hard people hit these and they're not dead. Anyway, top story on our site. People love it. They're eating it up. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland Congresswoman Chantel Brown has been working to get hazardous materials removed from hair straighteners. Seems like that should be an easy thing to do. Rick, does it appear she will finally have some success? 
So the ultimate outcome here is not entirely sewn up yet, but the Food and Drug Administration has proposed a ban on formaldehyde and chemicals that release formaldehyde, such as methylene glycol as an ingredient in hair smoothing or hair straightening products. These products are used to permanently straighten hair by breaking down the protein structure that makes some hair curly. This is something that Brown uh, has been pushing for. She co-authored a letter to the FDA earlier this year with another uh, Congress member pointing out that black women are more likely to use these products because of anti-black hair sentiments and therefore are disproportionately harmed by the chemicals. Uh, the letter noted that an NIH study released last year linked the use of hair straightening products to a higher risk of uterine cancer. Um, and that those who use hair straightening products more than four times in the previous year were more than twice as likely to develop uterine cancer as uh, non-users would. So it's important to note that this is a proposed rule from the FDA. So there's a long and winding road ahead uh, through the federal government bureaucracy for it to become actual policy. But it's something that Brown sees as a positive development for her efforts. Doesn't it seem like a no-brainer that you should be able to outlaw products that cause cancer that are used on your body? And it just, this one seems like you shouldn't even need this long period. They should just pass a law saying, okay, you can't put cancer-causing elements in things people are putting on their head. My guess I, is I, that it costs more to produce the, the product without it. And that speaks to the power of the cosmetic industry and whatever lobbies they have working on their behalf. Yeah, yeah, there's plenty of things that, that we see that seem like no-brainers, and yet uh, here we stand calling them no-brainers <laughs> because they haven't happened yet. Good point. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, why is Cleveland the wrong place to be if you suffer from asthma? Well, the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America put out its rankings of the 100 most challenging U.S. cities for people living with asthma, and Cleveland ranked fourth among the worst. But I guess that's that's better than we did on the rankings of states with the worst redistricting process. <laughs> so, <laughs> dead last. Dead last. <laughs> right. So um, several other Ohio cities also landed on this list. Columbus was number 11. Dayton was 19. Toledo was 28. Cincinnati, 29. And Akron was 39. To blame for this is increasing levels of pollen from weeds, especially ragweed and mold, along with the start of the flu season here. The ragweed pollen season now lasts longer than ever due to warmer temperatures that last well into November in many parts of the country. In fact, pollen season now starts about 20 days earlier, and the seasons are prolonged about 10 days longer than they did 30 years ago. And apparently the mold counts start increasing in July, and they keep climbing until the first hard freeze. And of course, there are other risk factors that can make asthma worse, like poverty and lack of health insurance and air pollution and cigarette smoking. And, and we have it all <laughs> here in Cleveland. I'm, I'm surprised Destination Cleveland hasn't made this a focus of the next <laughs> ad campaign. This is... <laughs> What's odd is I've had a lifelong ragweed allergy. It was really bad when I was younger, and I didn't feel it at all this year. But then this week, I got hit with allergies. I was in my doctor, and I mentioned it, and she said, oh, yeah, it's been nightmarish with what people have been dealing with. So anecdotally and by science, this is not good. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're not done yet. A sculpture unveiled this week in University Circle commemorates one of the most remarkable scenes of the 1960s. Lisa, what was the moment 
And what does the sculpture depict? Yeah, the sculpture represents the 1967 Cleveland Summit of Black athletes and leaders. They were supporting boxer Muhammad Ali's stance as a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. So it was dedicated yesterday in University Circle. It has three pieces. One piece is a large photo representation of the attendees on the wall of the American Cancer Society building at 10501 Euclid Avenue. And then in front of that is a black granite table with 12 layers representing the 12 participants of that summit. And then it has several microphones sitting on top. And there, there's a flat stone marker in front with the names of the 12 participants that included Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Russell, Carl Stokes, and Jim Brown. Um, this is very exciting. A uh, Cavs player Donovan Mitchell was one of the speakers at the dedication, and he was starstruck by the presence of participant John Wooten, who is a former Browns and NFL lineman. Um, and Mitchell said, you're a legend, and without you, you know, we were just not here. I hope this gets on the list of must-see tourism stops in Cleveland. I mean, it's one of the, the it's a huge moment in history. It's a Cleveland unique thing like yes. the Rock Hall. And you really hope that we get the word out that you definitely want to stop and visit this. This is a big moment to signify. Very cool that uh, this has been put together. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That closes out a very long week. We're all glad it's Friday. We hope you are, too. Thank you, Rick. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens. We'll be back Monday with another discussion of the news.